Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. So, wow, what a beautiful worship site. <laughs> Just the presence of God was so wonderful. And, you know, the song that Chelsea sang of Hills and Valleys, I felt like that, that song in itself was really the whole message for today. Um, I had put together different thoughts and, and things of such, and, and I, had, I have notes, and a lot of them are still going to be applicable. But before service, I was just like, you know, Lord, I still don't know what the real message is. And, and I was like, you told me to speak to their hearts. Well, if I'm supposed to speak to their hearts, and this is the long term, this is years ago, he said, speak to their hearts. And so that's the, well... That's, that's what we want to do when we share each week. And it's like you said, speak to their hearts, but I don't know what the message to the heart is this week. And so I stopped all my prep and I came and I sat down in the, in the prayer circle uh, that we have before service. And right when I sat down, I heard courage and don't lose heart. Right? <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's what the message is today. It's take courage and don't lose heart. And then we sit and sing about the hills and valleys and how God sees us and He's with us. We're never alone. He's always walking with us. He's the one who brings us to the, to the mountaintop and then He's with us in the valley. And that's so much of this week's portion. Um, it's so much, but, you know, as we go through the valleys, as, you know, it's, it's challenging and we can lose heart and we can say, wait, I thought I was supposed to ride upon wings of eagles and be the overcomer, but here I am at the bottom of the valley. And now, is this my lot? Is the valley my lot? Or is there a mountain ahead that I will ascend by the power of God, right? With his help. And so within that valley, within the times where we could lose heart, we have to take courage. And we have to strengthen ourselves in the Word and, and in God's presence and then be able to go forward and take hold of what's possible, right? And so there's several, several things that we'll talk about this week that all kind of go around that theme. Um, but this week we're starting a new book, right? We wrapped up Genesis last week and we're heading into the book of Shamot, which is names in Hebrew or Exodus. And... Um, we've been going through the stories of Joseph and of, of Judah, and now we're entering into the story of Moses, right? Another redeemer who's coming for the people. And so we're, we're going to cover a lot of the text in this, in this portion and just kind of talk about the, the story along the way. But a few things to, to watch for as we read the scriptures is how often you see the word saw, like, you know, to see and, and consider that because seeing is an important part of 
well, knowing where we are and what's really taking place, right? It's this, it's the seeing is the awareness, the mindfulness, being on the lookout. Okay, so let's go to Exodus 1, and we'll read how this story began. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they, oppressed, they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay, so we read, I believe that was all of chapter 1. But within this, we see a progression from the children of Israel being on the mountaintop and descending all the way to the valley to the point where their children are being thrown into the, into the, where their male children are being thrown into the Nile, killed at the word of Pharaoh and by the hand of the people of Egypt, right? You go from a place of being revered because of the work of Joseph to the point where your sons are being taken from you and thrown in the river. That's a, that is a large and rapid descent. And the Torah gives us a few pictures, really, or I guess within the way the words of the Torah are written, there is a, it's kind of telling the story of how this happened, what was Pharaoh's method of how he could take it from the point where the Egyptian people revered the children of Israel on this behalf of Joseph and Jacob to the point where they would take their children and throw them into the river, right? And because that's not something that happens easily, 
That's not a, just a transition where one day, hey, they're great, the next day you're willing to kill. And so there was a, a strategy that Pharaoh had brought up, and the Torah gives us hints through some of the language. So when we read about how the children of Israel grew, you know, how they were fruitful and increased and they became strong, in, in verse 7, of chapter 1, and you're not going to see this necessarily, you're not going to see it really in the English, but a translation, like a literal translation of the way that this is written in the Hebrew would say, the children of Israel were fruitful, they teamed, increased, and became very strong. Well, the word for teamed, okay, stands out because that word teamed is not used in other times when it's describing how they grew and they multiplied and teamed isn't usually used in reference to people. It's used in reference to insects, things that creep along the ground. Okay? So, this was the beginning of presenting the children of Israel as something other, something different. The beginning, the beginning to try to change the people's perception of them. Look, they're growing and they're multiplying so much, they're just like insects, creepy things. They're kind of invaders. They're things we don't like. And then, not only that, they could actually fight against us. And look how many they're becoming. Okay, so it's beginning to set a story about who they are so that it could turn people's minds against them. And then, when he says, uh, when it, okay, this is in verse 10. He says, come, let us outsmart it, lest it become numerous. So it had been talking about the children of Israel, and now it's going to begin to talk about the children of Israel as an it as opposed to a people. It's beginning to depersonalize. It's not only are they insects, now let's depersonalize them. Let's objectify them. And that's how it's, re how it's referred to here. Let us outsmart it, lest it become too numerous, and it may, or it may be that if war will occur, it too may join our enemies. And then, continuing on, so they appointed taskmasters over it in order to afflict it with their burdens. Just over and over in these three verses, verses 10 through 12, it's objectifying the people and depersonalizing, dehumanizing them. And then, interestingly enough, so he's working on this. Then he gets to the point where now he can say, hey, midwives, secretly kill the male children that are born. Now, the, the midwives were, were smart and they feared God, right? And so they said, oh, well, the Hebrew women, you know, they, they're too quick. They give birth before we get there, right? But now the thing is, what's, what's really additionally interesting about how the Hebrew midwives responded is, you know, some translations will say that they, um, let me see, like for example in here, they, they said that, they said, this is the translation that says, they are experts. Others say, you know, they're very skilled in childbirth. But in the, in the Hebrew, what it says is it says, for they are chayot. Okay, well, chayot is a word for wild animals. Interesting, right? So it's almost like they were playing on what Pharaoh was trying to describe the children of Israel as, saying, yeah, Pharaoh, it's like you said, they're just animals. They just give birth so naturally and quickly that we can't get to them. 
And so it's, it's pretty shrewd, right, to take that, you know, you fear God and you want to have an excuse to say, yeah, it's just like you said. They're just animals. So what can Pharaoh say? But then, what, then Pharaoh's ready to go to the next step, and he's ready to say, everyone of Egypt, if you see their child, throw them into the river. Notice he didn't appoint his soldiers to go do it, at least at this point. Instead, he was getting the people to act upon their perception of the children of Israel as being something other, an insect, an animal, more of an it, not really a person. I mean, this is exactly what Hitler did. I mean, completely blaming the Jews for everything, saying that they, well, anyway, just, it's, it's the same kind of strategy that is employed over and over again throughout history in order to make it, to desensitize the people and actually to make the people themselves animals because they leave their conscience and become, begin to act according to animal instincts based on fear uh, and, uh, and other things. But, so that's what Pharaoh was doing to where the people were comfortable throwing the children into the river. And so there were three things that were key here is saying that they're not really people, you know, and then there's kill the babies secretly. And then lastly, there's throw the babies into the river. We're not hiding it anymore. Right. Yes, Paul. Sounds a lot like what they did for abortion. For abortion. Once it's not a baby, once it's, it's a head or Right, yeah, because it's like, don't show a sonogram because you don't want to realize that this thing, that this baby is alive. Instead, just think of it as a mass of cells, right? As long as the girls don't actually see what's happening, it's it's okay. Right. It's it's how powerful words and strategies are in achieving evil, right? Especially when a people does not ground themselves in the Word of God or in seeking out truth. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, so, but so those were, that was the progression of how they now found, the children of Israel now found themselves in a valley and under harsh affliction. But even then, even from that place, as we said earlier, there is yet hope and the ability to take courage and know that God is with us. And the children of Israel may not have known at that moment that God was with them, right? Because it's easy to forget, but he was going to raise up a redeemer who would come and who would speak hope and life into them. And God gave um, Moses the very things that were needed to encourage the people so that they would know that God was with them. So, but before Moses could even be brought up, he first had to be delivered. Right, because he was a male child who was supposed to have been thrown into the into the uh, Nile. So in Exodus two, we'll read verses one through seven. When God begins to raise up the redeemer, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. 
She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And so then she says, Yes. Miriam goes and gets her mother, and her mother gets to nurse uh, Moses and raise him. But within this story, a key element of this Redeemer being raised up was the daughter of Pharaoh seeing him and having compassion for him, right? So the scripture says that she saw, she saw a basket among the reeds and sent her maidservant to get it for her and she took it. And she had compassion on this child. And according to the sages, there's a midrash about this, that when Pharaoh saw the basket, she reached for the basket and her arms stretched all the way to the basket and grabbed it and took it to herself. And now we say, that sounds really odd and really fanciful, right? Because a lot of the, the midrashes that we can read sound outlandish in a lot of ways. But the thing is, the midrash is supposed to be read in connection with the scripture and to help us to see things within the scripture. So do I believe that her arm really extended? No, I don't believe her arm really extended. But why did the sages even come up with this crazy story? Well, it's because of what was written here in the scriptures when it says that she saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her ama, her maid servant, her, she sent her ama and she took it. Well, the ama has more than one meaning. It can be maid servant, but also if you... Uh, it can also be, what's also the word for cubit. Okay, what's a cubit? A cubit is a length of a forearm. Okay, and so ama is associated with an arm, and so she sent her arm and took hold of the basket. Is an alternate way of reading it. But now, you know, you could have said, well, she walked over to it and she stretched out her arm and grabbed it. Why did the arm have to become super long? It's like, well, that's to teach us something else as well. Consider the scenario here. This wasn't just, this wasn't like, oh, a Hebrew woman's walking by the, by the waters and saw this basket and looked in and saw a Hebrew child and said, you know what, I'm going to risk my life for this child. This is the daughter of Pharaoh who says, I know that this is a Hebrew child, and as such, my father said that he should be thrown into the Nile but I'm willing to risk my life because I'm having compassion on this child and I'm going to take this child and I'm going to allow it to live. Now, consider even more than just the risk she was taking. Think about who she had to be to overcome all the propaganda because if all the people living in Egypt can buy into the propaganda of Pharaoh, how can someone in his own house who's even more inundated with it, overcome it. No, there was something different about her. 
And she said, no, I see the value of this life. I see through the propaganda and the lies, and I'm willing to step out to courageously do this, even in defiance of my father. So there was courage for her to step out and do this. And, you know, according to, um, it's in uh, the book of Jubilees, her name is listed as uh, Batia. Okay? And, you know, in the scripture here we're reading, it's her name is the daughter of Pharaoh, daughter of Pharaoh. It's Bat, Batparo, Batparo. But in, the, in uh, I said Jubilees, her name is Batya, the daughter of God. Not the daughter of Pharaoh, but the daughter of God. Now, Batya was not her real name, but it's the name she earned because of her actions. She showed herself to be a daughter of God, not a daughter of Pharaoh. Right? Who was her? You know, last week we talked about you do the deeds of your father. She was doing the deeds of the Father in heaven by showing compassion, even when the world said that that compassion should not be shown, even at great risk. So in that way, when she did this to protect Moses and preserve his life, she reached for something that was impossible, believing that it could be possible. And in that way, it's likened unto her arm being extended, even though physically that were not possible. It's really a, a beautiful story, right? To think of the selflessness and the heart of compassion when she saw one in need. And now, so now Moses is saved from, from a death and he's raised up in the palace and this is where we find him in Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Okay, so, so Moses... now raised as a, a prince in Pharaoh's house, went out and saw his brothers being mistreated, right? And he had compassion on the brother of his that was being, being beaten. He struck down the Egyptian. And then he continued to go out and to try to bring peace among his brothers and was rejected. And then as he has to leave and flee, he comes and defends Jethro's daughters as they were trying to water their flock. So you see, time and time again, Moses observing injustice and standing up to try to bring 
justice and reconciliation into the situation. He saw his people and he had compassion on them and went at risk to himself to bring to to defend them and uh, and stand for them. Now, as we continue on in the story, well, I guess in in some ways, you know, Moses is showing him to be a faithful child of Israel and also walking in the footsteps of his mother, right? And I mean, his Egyptian mother, right? Showing compassion on those in need. Now, as we continue on the story here in Exodus 3, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, so here's where we're reading in this passage. God saw the affliction of his people. In verse 7, he says, I have indeed seen the affliction of my people that is in Egypt. I have heard its outcry. So he sees and he hears as they're in their, in their burdens and their trials. And, he, and then he goes on to say, I have known their sufferings. I have known their sufferings. You know, when, when we talk a little bit here about compassion, right, there's this aspect of to have compassion, you have to first see that someone is in pain or suffering. You first have to be aware of it, see it. And then there's varying degrees of compassion that you can have. You can have sympathy, where you, where you feel sorry for someone, or there's empathy, which is where you really place yourselves in their, in their shoes, and you begin to relate with the pain they have, and that's a deeper level of, that opens the door to a deeper, deeper level of compassion. But then there's this, I think there's this whole other level here that God's talking about where he says, I have known their sufferings. I have been with them in their sufferings. And you, you have to really be with someone to know their sufferings. And that's one of the things that God promised even to Jacob before Jacob came down to the land, right? When Joseph sent for Jacob, God encountered Jacob along the way. When Jacob stopped uh, to pray, and I'm going to go back to it here. Um, if I can find it 
Okay, so this was in Genesis 46 when he said, this is verse 2, God spoke to Israel in a night vision. He said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. He said, I'm the God, God of your father. Doesn't that sound familiar to how he was talking to Moses at the bush? But anyway, have no fear of descending to Egypt, for I shall establish you as a great nation there. I shall descend with you to Egypt, and I also shall surely bring you up. So God had promised, Jacob, I'm going, I'm going with you into exile, into G- Egypt, but I will surely bring you up. And now God has been with his people, and he has known its sufferings. Even when they were in the valley, they weren't alone, because he was with them just as he had promised to Jacob, and he knew their sufferings. I have descended to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from that land to a good and spacious land. Right? So God's getting ready to move on his promise. He's remembering his people, hearing their outcry. And, and when I think of this, of course, you know, I have descended to rescue it. We think of the life of Yeshua and how he descended to rescue a people who sat in darkness, who needed a great light to shine upon them. And he was that light to shine upon them. And one of the things that came to my mind was Matthew, the story in Matthew, Yeshua is going around all the synagogues and he's healing the people. Actually, we'll just read it here in the, in the scriptures. In Matthew 9, verse 35, Yeshua went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and thrown down like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But here, Yeshua is going around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that the the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that God is moving to bring about his, his promise of redemption. So he's teaching them the word. He's healing every disease and every affliction. And he sees that they are harassed and thrown down. And he has compassion on them. Right? And like sheep without a shepherd. So when I'm reading this, I'm thinking on how Moses, too, was seeing his people who were harassed and thrown down and he stood for them right now you see Yeshua doing the same for the people the lost sheep of Israel and and God saw that his people were harassed and thrown down and he had compassion on them because he had known their sufferings and then you know this verse of the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest oftentimes I'll see this and either it's presented in the context of uh you know, saving souls, and it's it, that's a good context, or that's that's a a good representation. It's a very important thing, but in the context of this passage, there are people who are in need in various dimensions, of needing to hear the word, of hear the kingdom of heavens at hand, to have diseases and afflictions removed, and to be delivered from being harassed and thrown down. And Yeshua says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is the deliverance of 
the people from whatever it is that's afflicting them. That's the harvest that's being spoken of here. It's not the harvest at the end of the age, even though that's an important harvest. The harvest here is that there are so many in need and there is a word that can come to them and bring restoration. There's a touch that can come and bring restoration. But the laborers are few. Pray for the Lord to send, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to bring that deliverance in the now, in this moment. And then the next thing that happens in, in Matthew 10 is Yeshua commissions his disciples and sends them out to go and heal every affliction. Right? And he sends them out with authority to go and do exactly what he said we need to pray for, which is to pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Right? So it's, they had to go and do it. There's one thing to see affliction, and there's another to begin to have compassion, but it's incomplete unless it's then followed up with the action that will go and bring the harvest And so we can, right here, we can look and we can see what we've read in the scriptures where God says, I've heard its outcry and I have known its sufferings. But if he stops there, it's incomplete. He's going to have to send forth the deliverer, send forth the redeemer to go and bring the people out. And God says, I will bring you up from this, even though all your circumstances are difficult. And, and so, you know, what we read here in Matthew 9, um, he saw them as being like sheep without a shepherd. And whenever I read that passage, it always takes me back to Ezekiel 34, where God is, the whole chapter of Ezekiel 34 is dealing with the shepherds who have not been acting faithfully, who have not really been shepherding the flock. They've just been taking care of themselves at the expense of the flock, right? And so God's response is that he's going to judge those shepherds who are not acting in compassion and not actually doing the work of the shepherd. And in verse 11, he says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then continue on in verse 15. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I had to read that carefully because <laughs> I will feed them in justice. Yes. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's, it's God saying that he is going to be the one who will shepherd. He is the one who will set his prince David over his people. He will shepherd them and he will show them love and give them what they need. Now, you know, as we're talking about the need to actually go through and do the work, and God's saying that He is going to be the one who's going to bring redemption. It's, 
how do you bring a complete redemption? Right? There's there's multiple levels of redemption, right? Because he could take them out from under Pharaoh, but then so they could actually live free to some degree, but in some way they're still scarred by their past. They're still scarred by their experiences. And so then there's the need for them to know that God was with them in those experiences and that he can actually bring healing to those areas of hurt. And part of the thing that, you know, the people who've been through trauma need is to, to be heard and for someone to know the pain and the anguish that they've been in. You know, when, uh, if you've ever, if you ever had a child or, or heard them after they've had an injury, right? So they, they have some kind of injury and they, they cry about it and then they, they bring it up multiple times. They kind of keep going back to it about how they got hurt. And often, you know, the response of a parent or an adult might be, yeah, milk that for all you can, you know, you just keep bringing it up over and over. Um, but there's really something that's taking place with the child and bringing it up over and over again because they're kind of reliving the pain of it. And then there's a chance for the adult or the parent to, you know, acknowledge, that, yeah, that, that was tough. There was a time when uh, David was really young and... Uh, so we this is oh man he was so young but we we uh I was at work and we haven't we had an alarm system in our house and anyway Heather had something to throw away in the trash can just outside the back door and she's like okay well she opened the door and the alarm started to kind of let her know that she needed to turn off she's like well I'm just gonna throw this away real quick so she threw it away and David shut the door behind her so now she's locked out and the alarm's on the countdown. <laughs> and so anyway, it became a big ordeal uh, where the, then the alarm's going off and this thing is loud. I mean, it is loud. And David's standing there and it's this glass door. And he's standing there at the glass door crying. And Heather's on the outside being like, ah, what am I going to do? And so anyway, it, it took a long time, you know, to, well, there, the story goes on where we had a spare key, but she couldn't get to it she couldn't remember the code and then when she did get the code the garage door only went up like a foot <laughs> and so just the police were there and they're like do you want us to break the glass and it's like no you <laughs> know so anyway, it was a long time the day was in there in the midst of this trauma and so then for weeks he would talk about that experience you know because it was severe trauma but it was so in some ways, it's like, yeah, you're not going to let that story go, are you? You're going to get all the sympathy you can. But really, he was just processing a trauma. So he needed to be heard and for it to be acknowledged that, yeah, you, you did. You went through that pain and that suffering. And so the children of Israel now, they've been enslaved in harsh labor for many years. And they need to know, well, they need, re they need to be healed from the trauma that they've experienced through the servitude, the harsh labor they were given, through their male children being slaughtered, and for it all being covered up in the Nile, right? Because that was the thing, throw the baby in the Nile. It'll sink to the bottom or be carried away. We don't even know about it. It'll just be gone. No grave, nothing. It's just gone, right? And so the mental anguish 
that they were going through needed to be resolved, not just them being taken out of Egypt. And so the thing is, God goes to tell them, no, I'm with you, and I've known your sufferings. And so he goes through great lengths to communicate that to them. And so let's read in Exodus 3, 11 through 17. Okay. So they're still, where we are, we're still at the burning bush. Okay. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so several things stand out in this. So Moses asks, you know, who am I to say has sent has sent me? And he says, I am that I am. Okay, so that's the translation of the of the Greek uh, of the Septuagint. I am that I am. In the Hebrew, he says, I shall be as I shall be. Ehiye, asher ehiye. Okay. And so he says, I shall be as I shall be. And what's what the sages understand this to be is saying, I will be with you, I will be with you in your afflictions now, and I will be with you in your afflictions that are to come. Okay? And and the question maybe, well, why is it that you say I will be with you in your afflictions? Or, or why is it that I will be is that I will be with you? And that goes back to when Moses said, Who am I that I should go? God says, I shall be with you. Ehie, imach, imacha. Okay? He says, I shall be with you. And he says, Tell them, Ehie, asher Ehie. Okay? So, I will be with you, and I will be with you. So, I'm, I will be with you now, and I will be with you in the future. And then the question becomes, Well, why then does he say, So shall you say to the children of Israel, I shall be has sent me to you? And the sages say that there was a, this was really a conversation going on between God and Moses, where Moses said, replied to God, he said, Lord, I know you want, you want to say that you'll be with them in this affliction and you'll be with them in future afflictions, but isn't this one affliction enough for today? You know, that that would be a discouragement to them to think you're afflicted now and you're going to have more afflictions as opposed to are you afflicted now? And the reason why they see this as a continuing conversation is that the scripture says, God answered Moses, I shall be as I shall be. And it says, and he said, so shall you say to the children of Israel, I shall be 
has sent me to you. Whereas if it was one conversation without any interruption, the scripture wouldn't need to say, and he said, again. So the and he said implies that something took place in between the I shall be as I shall be and the and he said, so shall you say to the children of Israel. I shall be as sent me to you. So God listened and said, okay, just tell them I'm going to be with them in this affliction. It's true that I will be in future, but tell them this, that I will be with you. And then he goes on to say, tell them that he has seen what has been done to them and that he will surely bring them out. Okay, so God is giving encouragement to their spirits. And now um, we go through the story, or we continue on with the story, and let's go to Exodus 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may, that they may believe that the, Lord, the God, that, uh, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Okay, so God tells Moses that there are three signs that he's going to give to the children of Israel so that they will believe that God really did appear to him. And these were the three. It was the... Uh, the staff turning into a snake. It was um, the hand becoming leprous. And then finally, it was the water of the Nile being poured out and turning to blood. Right. And so those three things are how he's going to prove it. And we could ask the question of, well, why were those the three things that God chose to relay to the children of Israel that, that he had really sent Moses, that he would really appeared to him, And what it, the reasoning behind it is that these three things are parallels of the three things that we read in Exodus chapter 1, of how Pharaoh sought to afflict the people, the children of Israel. And so God says, do this in the same order, and all this represents what has been done to you, what afflictions that you have been in. So that you'll know that I have seen what you've been through. These are the signs. So he takes a staff and he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. Okay, so what was the first thing that we had in Exodus 1? In Exodus 1, the first thing that happened is that 
Pharaoh began to describe the people as insects, as things that crawl on the ground, as an it, as something that is not really human, that it's other, right? So now you take the staff and you throw it on the ground and it becomes a snake, something that crawls along the ground. It goes along the ground and you think, well, yeah, that's kind of, that's not a very good connection so far, Chris. Even though the snake does crawl along the ground, it's something other than a person. But then if we say, why was it that he chose that it should be Moses' staff that he would throw on the ground and it would become a snake? Because the word for staff is mate. And, and that's um, also the word for tribes. Who are the children of Israel? They're the 12 tribes of Israel. So take the tribe and throw it on the ground and it'll appear as a snake, right? So now the people appear as a snake. I saw you portrayed as a snake or something that was inhuman. And then the next step, he says, put your hand in your, in your breast pocket and bring it out and it's leprous. Well, what's the story here? And I wish I had the, the scripture verse here, but if um, toward, in, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers, um, Miriam and Aaron are, are speaking poorly of Moses, right? And, and the result is that Miriam becomes leprous. And when, when Aaron begins to intercede for her, he says that she is, she is like a dead person and that she is like a stillborn that has come out of the womb with no flesh on it. Okay, that's, that's how the, the leper is described as a stillborn. And so now you have the second level of what's happening with the children of Israel. When Pharaoh said to the midwives, hey, when the male baby comes out, act like it was a stillborn. Act like it was a stillborn. And then the next step is... The water, he says, take the water of the Nile and pour it on the ground and it'll turn to blood. Well, when the children, when the baby boys were thrown into the Nile, their blood didn't come out and make the Nile turn red, but their blood was in the Nile. And so now when he take the water and they pour it out, he says, I've seen their shed blood in the Nile. So in those three ways, those are the three testaments to them that God had seen them in all their afflictions and had known it and was with them. Pretty neat uh, parallel, but it's one of those things where if we read through it, we, we won't gloss, well, we gloss over it, right? Um, and especially when we then come to the, the plagues and we see, oh yeah, yeah, you've got the first plague, which was the water, the Nile turning red. Okay, well, maybe that's tied to it. And then you have the death of the firstborn on plague number 10. Maybe that's tied to the leprous thing, but it was really first and foremost pointing back to what their afflictions had been. And then you do have them go in reverse order. Those three things played out in reverse order through the Exodus, but we're not going to go in that today for the sake of time. But God was saying, I'm with you. I'm with you in it, and I remember. So then as we continue on, Moses then goes and he presents this to the people and the people believe. So the scripture says that he, 
they saw the, the signs that he presented before them and they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves unto the Lord because they knew that God had seen their affliction. This is um, Exodus 4.31. And the people believed and they heard that the Lord had remembered the children of Israel and that he saw their afflictions and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And if we continue on uh, with the story, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let the children of Israel go three days journey to worship the Lord. And Pharaoh won't do it. Instead, he increases their burdens upon them, taking away even the straw that they use so they'd have to, well, they'd have to work all the harder and still bring in the same quota. So their, their lives became worse as the deliverance was beginning. And you know, when you're in the valley already and you think the deliverance has come because now you've seen God has sent these three signs through this Redeemer, and you believe God and you fall down and worship and saying, our redemption draws nigh. And he goes to Pharaoh and it gets worse. Oh, this isn't how I thought it was going to go. I was already in the valley and now I'm in a deeper valley. What am I going to do? Right. What am I going to do? And and so Moses is well, both the people and Moses truthfully began to lose heart with what was going on. For here in Exodus 5, 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That's a harsh spot. It's a harsh spot for Moses. It's a harsh spot for the people of the children of Israel. But God says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So God says, Now you will see the deliverance come forth. And, you know, I, I, I said that the children of Israel had begun to, to lose heart too, right? They had asked him, you know, may God look upon you and judge, for you've made our very scent abhorrent in the eyes of Pharaoh. And then later on, when Moses comes back, after God sends him back the second time, and he comes to the people, they're not able to listen to him because it says that they are breathless. They're so weighed down and heavy, they can't even begin to listen to encouragement. So they've, they're at a new low, but God says, no, 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 I'm going to bring the rescue and all this is according to my plan and purpose of how it's going to be. For when God allows the wicked to continue to prosper, he's allowing time for their punishment to increase, right? And then when he's allowing the innocent to suffer, it's for the purpose of a greater reward, a greater redemption, a greater deliverance. And so that's what's building up in this time. And actually, with the afflictions that Pharaoh was increasing on the, on the children of Israel, he was actually accelerating the redemption. He was accelerating the redemption. Um, now, in the, in the middle of that, it's hard to bear that in mind of, oh, wow, this is getting worse. This is good. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it'd be nice to be able to have that attitude. But that's the whole thing, I, I think, is being able to say, you know what, God understands my affliction. He understands my sorrow and he's actually with me in the valley and he's not going to leave me or forsake me. 
that allows us to have courage and not to lose heart when, when we're in the midst of it. And then to say, you know what? I can have faith to reach out for something that appears beyond me and allow God to move and make the impossible possible. But it takes courage. You see the affliction, you have compassion for it, and then you have compassion, or you have that compassion turn into the action, a courageous action. And that may be our, you know, when I'm saying seeing the affliction and and having compassion, that may be what we see with others, but it may very well be with us too, to see what is this affliction? What is it that God's working out? And then now, how do I move forward in what he's working on? How do I embrace God's move in the valley so that he can then carry me to that mountaintop? And one last verse before we, before we close. It's from Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will remember the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. So he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, so the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Right? He did it then, and he does it today. He did it through the work of Yeshua, and he'll carry you and your trials and troubles too, and be the Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Lord, thank you that you have known our afflictions. You're with us in the valley. Lord, and that you will raise us up. Thank you. I ask that you would strengthen us. Help us, Lord, to see as you see, to have compassion as you have compassion, and to have the courage to step forward, Lord, and not to lose heart. Lord, we bless you and give you praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.